Good afternoon. You're listening to KFSK News for Wednesday, October 25th. I'm Hannah Floor. Hunters have reached a new high for the month-long moose hunt in central southeast. 141 bulls. That's nine more than the previous record harvest, which was set at set in 2021. Hunters had until last Friday to report their kills to the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. Most of this season's moose were harvested on Kupernoff, 61 bulls, which is where hunters consistently rack up the most moose. The second highest harvest, 31 bulls, came from Kuyu Island. Frank Robbins manages the hunt area for the state. He says that's a significant change for the island compared to the last few decades. It wasn't that long ago where there was, you know, virtually no harvest of moose on Kiyu Island. And then the last, you know, six years, we've kind of seen a skyrocket of harvest. Petersburg's Mitkov Island was another outlier. Twelve moose were taken on the island, a big jump from last year when only three bulls were harvested. Over the past decade, moose hunters have set several records in the region. Robin says that's because the moose are moving in. A couple decades ago, there were very few of them in the region, and the hunt was almost entirely relegated to the mainland. But over the years, he says he's seen more moose cropping up on remote islands. The trend lately has been the distribution has expanded across the Krupanoff and to Kuyu, which largely accounts for the increase in the harvest over time. You know, that's sort of the big change. The, the harvest has shifted and sort of shifted westward. So the moose have expanded from the mainland to these island habitats over time and slowly increased in numbers, and, and that's reflected in the harvest. Over the course of the month, hunters told state managers that they saw many total moose, meaning bulls, cows, and calves, across the area. Robin says that bodes well for future hunts. The Central Southeast Hunt was open September 15th through October 15th. Area hunters must submit a report to the Alaska Department of Fish and Game by Monday, October 30th, even if they did not hunt. You can submit a report online at hunt.alaska.gov or by calling 907-772-3801. A Petersburg nonprofit that has long worked to combat violence is looking to restart its safe house program. The state of Alaska has some of the highest rates of intimate partner violence in the nation. As KFSK reports, safe house programs can provide a way out for those experiencing domestic violence. WAVE, or Working Against Violence for Everyone, had a network of safe houses in Petersburg for years, but in 2020, they stopped when their insurance company would not cover the program. Everett Bennett is WAVE's executive director. It's frustrating to look at someone and say, I don't have anything to offer you, and I know that your situation is violent. WAVE dates back to the early 1980s. Community members formed the group to address the problem of domestic violence in Petersburg. The Safe House program was fairly straightforward. When people needed to get out of a violent situation, they could call WAVE. The organization had a list of volunteers with spare rooms who would host women, or women and children, for up to three days. WAVE co-founder Marlene Cushing says the Safe House program was key to getting people out of harm's way. It gave them just a space to feel safe while one of the WAVE advocates would work with them on what their options were and help them um, get to the next step, whatever that might be. Alaska is third highest for intimate partner violence against women, according to a report from the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. 
The same report found that Alaska has the highest homicide rate in the nation for female victims killed by a male perpetrator. Brenda Stanfill is the executive director of the Alaska Network on Domestic Violence and Assault. She says there's no one reason that Alaska's numbers are so high. We've got to take all of the things that we are impacted by in Alaska into consideration because they all tie in. So while domestic violence and sexual assault is not because of substance abuse or mental health or stress or lack of a job, that ties into it where it makes it worse. There are no domestic violence shelters or homeless shelters in the island town of Petersburg. Victims of domestic violence are sometimes forced to choose between living in their car or taking a flight to a shelter in a neighboring town. That makes it much harder for someone to leave a violent environment. Stanville says that lack of choice is common in rural Alaska. Safe houses are instrumental in filling the gap. We can't always get a plane to get someone out of a village quickly. And sometimes, you know, that's your home. Sometimes people don't want to leave their home. They, they want to stay there in their village. That's where their support is. That's where their kids are used to going to school. WAVE had to end its safe house program in Petersburg when an important funding source required the organization to have liability insurance. Their insurance company wouldn't cover WAVE with the safe house program intact. Stanfield says the problem is not uncommon. Insurance companies did start getting nervous about liability. Um, if there was a safe home and you were a domestic violence victim was going there to escape an abuser, what if he followed her? Would it be the liability of the regional center for why, you know, someone got hurt. But this year, the insurance company changed its mind. Waves insurance agent Susan Erickson explained the shift in an email. She said, quote, as years go by, insurance companies have a better grasp on certain risks, so their offerings change, unquote. Now Waves staff and board members are looking to get the program going again. Marlene Cushing hopes that community members will consider volunteering their homes as safe houses. If people have the space and feel like this is something that they might be drawn to, it's a a great opportunity to make a very big difference. Requirements are minimal, although hosts must agree to total secrecy. That protects both victims and hosts, and it also makes it possible for the safe house to be used repeatedly. In Petersburg, I'm Hannah Floor. Anyone interested in signing up as a safe house host can call the organization at 907-772-WAVE. Alaska's chief medical officer, Ann Zink, is urging people to get the flu vaccine this month to protect themselves against an early season. Early flu is looking rough in Alaska. And what we've seen is a real uptake in the last couple weeks for influenza. She says the department often recommends people get the flu vaccine before Halloween. The slogan is flu before boo. And this year, she says she thinks that's a good goal. She says it's hard to predict what flu season will look like this year, but she's concerned. She says last year there was an early flu season, and later there were high numbers of cases of RSV, flu, and COVID. When we get a lot of viruses all at once, we can really overwhelm our limited healthcare capacity system within the state. But she says there are more immunizations than ever available for respiratory illnesses. This year is the first year an immunization for RSV is available for babies zero to eight months. Older adults can get vaccines for RSV. And Zink says in addition to flu shots, 
People at greater risk can take treatments like Tamiflu to reduce symptoms. An International Human Rights Commission has found that mining practices in British Columbia could violate the fundamental human rights of communities and tribes in southeast Alaska. As Sage Smiley reports from Wrangell, it's a significant step in a years-long effort by southeast tribal leaders to have a say in the permitting of Canadian mine projects. Wrangell Island sits tucked at the mouth of the Stikine River Delta. The silty water has sustained migratory birds, salmon, and people for thousands of years. If I don't have enough salmon on a weekly basis, I feel like I am going to shrivel up and die. <laughs> Upseen Esther Reese is the tribal administrator for Wrangell's tribal government. But in all seriousness, my ancestors have managed the waterways and, and the lands in this area since time immemorial. They found the oldest domesticated dog bone on the back channel, and it is 10,000 years old. And so it just shows how long our people have been on these lands and have relied on the waterways for our very survival. Reese is also president of the Southeast Alaska Indigenous Transboundary Commission, a nonprofit consortium of 15 tribes that advocates for watershed protections and tribal representation in environmental decision-making processes. The fact that there are these mines above the colonial border that do not have the best interest at heart for the environment and for living gently on the land is basically what we're fighting against. The largest tributary of the Stikine River, the Iskut, across the border in Canada, is almost entirely staked with mineral exploration claims. Southeast communities and tribal governments and Alaska's congressional delegation have long expressed concerns with mining practices in the Canadian province of British Columbia. Many operational and proposed mines in the province straddle what are called transboundary watersheds that flow from B.C. to southeast Alaska. Recent scientific studies have found that even if a mine doesn't have a catastrophic failure, mines can have watershed impacts hundreds of miles downstream and years into the future. In 2020, the Southeast Alaska Indigenous Transboundary Commission filed an international human rights complaint against the federal government of Canada and the provincial government of British Columbia. The complaint cites what's called the American Declaration of the Rights and Duties of Man, an international agreement formed in 1948 as one of the first actions of the United Nations. It's a non-binding declaration on the fundamental economic, social, and cultural rights of humans. Guy Archibald is the executive director of the Southeast Alaska Indigenous Transboundary Commission. We filed a complaint alleging that Canada has violated that declaration because they have not consulted with anybody, and specifically the tribes here in Southeast Alaska, on any of these mining projects. Canadian officials took almost a year to respond to the complaint, well outside the designated time for response, which led to some back and forth over the ensuing years. In late August, the International Commission, called the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, agreed that Canadian mining practices could be violating the fundamental rights of Southeast tribes and communities. That kicked off another round of review and opportunities to comment. Archibald says he hopes the Inter-American Commission will decide in favor of Southeast tribes. In his view, it would fundamentally change the way the Canadian federal and B.C. provincial governments approach mining. They would have to assure that these mines are not going to pollute our waters. They're going to have to consult with us. They're going to have to respect our traditional 
cultural opportunities, some of which now reside within Canada and within B.C. Canada wouldn't be forced to comply with recommendations from the International Human Rights Commission. It doesn't have any enforcement power. But Archibald says it could help. Even if Canada kind of refuses to implement these recommendations, it would be a big embarrassment to them on the world stage that they do not uphold human rights. And I would also hope that any potential investor in any of these mining companies would also have second thoughts about investing their hard-earned money in the companies that violate human rights. The Inter-American Commission on Human Rights did not respond to a request for comment on the evaluation process. In an emailed statement, a spokesperson for the Canadian Department of Justice said it is proactively participating and that, quote, Canada recognizes the legitimacy of the petition process. Reese, Rengel's tribal administrator, says a finding in favor of Southeast tribes would be a historic recognition of traditional territories and the rights of indigenous people to be able to protect them. It's it's a very important fight. It's an emotional fight. We are not just fighting for us. We're fighting for those who come after us, just like those who came before us. Southeast tribes and the Canadian government have four months to respond to the initial finding by the Inter-American Human Rights Commission. The commission could then issue a final finding early next year. In Wrangell, I'm Sage Smiley. The U.S. Interior Secretary was greeted with a standing ovation at the Alaska Federation of Natives Convention last Friday. From subsistence to Native veterans, Secretary Deb Holland touched on a range of topics. But one issue on this trip to Alaska got a lot of her attention. On Sunday, Holland held a listening session in Anchorage on the trauma caused by Native boarding schools. We must reckon with our past if we are to address the injustices we still face because we know that intergenerational trauma connects so much of what hurts us. Holland has been traveling the country on what she calls a road to healing tour, taking testimony on the boarding school era and the damage it caused. My grandma used to share stories of this trauma with me, about how a priest showed up one day in her village, took her and other children away from their parents and families and sent them on a train to a Catholic boarding school when she was only eight years old. Holland's listening session was held at the Alaska Native Heritage Center, followed by the raising of a healing totem. The Heritage Center has been investigating church records to learn more about how Alaska Natives were impacted. Benjamin Jasek, one of the researchers, says his grandfather is a boarding school survivor, which got him interested in learning more. The road to healing is going to be a very a very emotional event because it's a lot of people actually telling their stories. Some may be the first time. And one thing that you know is never leave people in that space. Jasek said the healing totem will go up following this testimony. It's a work of two Haida master carvers, Joe and TJ Young. An elder developed the concept for the design. The totem pole depicts Mother Bear, who is holding two cubs, while the father, in human form, sits above her, embedded in a raven's tail. Two children rest comfortably in raven's ear. For KFSK, I'm Hannah Floor.